millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sort of 40-year career, uh, mainly um, in sort of uh, gossip columns or uh, diaries. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, not all. I, mean, yeah. I started as a serious journalist, believe it or not, because <laughs> um, I, I, I was London correspondent of the Irish press group for throughout the well, late 70s and early 80s when the troubles were on and having to cover really serious stories. And in a way, it was much more fulfilling. But then, when they were closing the London office, I was I started to do shifts in London's diary, and that, that drifted into gossip. Mm. Mm. Uh, and from you know, in a way, you know, you become sort of pigeonholed. I never actually had the fair cause of serious news in the end. Yeah. And the uh, what's the sort of um, the best story you've had? Do you think, or the one that you're kind of proudest of? I'm, I'm not really. The te- that's. The, I mean, I, it's a complete blur. You know, there's no real <laughs> story that stands out. Um, uh, you know, on a serious news basis, I'm quite proud of it. I covered the um, the the. the, the SAS assassination of the three IRA people in Gibraltar, yeah. and uh, basically, I discovered that you know, the SAS had said that they'd um, 
it was shot me once in the head and I found the uh, undertaker who uh, in Gibraltar who said his English was very good but I said well there's just one shot he said no no how you say riddled <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was a serious news story but there isn't really any great um, outstanding scoop or uh, basically it's just you know, all, all diary stories are revelations in a sense or discoveries but none of them are none of them matter that much they're all it's really entertainment rather than um, campaigning or being serious about journalism. It's more diverting and show busy. Um, it, it strikes me um, that like diary uh, people tend to sort of do do the job for two or three years, as far as I can tell. They not that many stay along for a long time. So it must be incredibly uh, hard to constantly come up with the uh, original stuff that no one else has got. It's it, not it's, like, it, it's it not like you've got the diary to fall back on so much. Yeah. Have you? Well, it's, it's the one the part diary. of the paper where I mean. Here, here in the mail, for example, there'd be a news list and a foreign list and a city list. And these are all stories that are reacting to events. Diaries, you tend to have to come up with something, uh, originate something about something. You can't just, you know, okay, do a picture caption of some, somebody. But basically, you have to originate stories. You have to find stories. People tell you things at parties. And that is the great tragedy with people who go out of the world. You know, yeah. you, you have to know the person you're either phoning up because you've met them at a party or you've yeah. not had a lunch with them. Uh, and I do think that diaries are the most difficult part of um, the newspaper to do. But in effect, really, the change is phenomenal in the newspapers because when I started, the diaries were confined to a page. Now virtually all the paper is diaries. You know, it's all light stuff, reality TV, show yeah. business, um, Hollywood. And it's not confined to the diary page. Um, I mean, uh, Jeff uh, Levy, who's a veteran who's still surviving nearly up to 80. Jeff was William Hickey on the Daily Express long before I was, and when he was William Hickey on the Daily Express, they had a staff 12 in the diary. 12. Wow. And they, <laughs> but they would actually do two editions. They would do a diary you know, up to tea time, and then they'd go out to stories and come back and write for the later editions. And having a staff of 12, now, you know, you're lucky that I, I'm a hard castle, but it's only Peter Mackay and I, which is a small column. But uh, Nicholas, uh, sorry, not Nicholas, but um, Sebastian Shakespeare, who would be the inheritor of, I suppose, Dempster, has yeah. two full-time, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, that's the way it goes. It's, uh, it's not the industry's changed so much. Any story, I mean, it strikes me you had to be uh, incredibly kind of thick-skinned and uh, and uh, have a sort of brass neck as well to ask the questions you ask of people who you're quite friendly with. But you, is there anything that makes you blush now, looking back on well, it? Well, no, no, I, I, I did uh, I did include the story of, of uh, Sean Connery, which um, uh, you know, sort of showed up. His, he was famous for being a tightwad, and I think I worked on the standard at the time, and um, he owned the play art, which... Um, French player. In fact, it was his wife owned it. But um, it was it opened in London with Ken Stott and Albert Finney and um, uh, Tom Courtney. It was a, a, a threesome. And normally, an opening uh, party it depends how lavish it is. It's usually, you know, maybe some champagne, certainly finger food and um, red and white wine. And the, the Connery hosted the party at the Mal Gallery in, in the Mal. And it was a pay bar. And that was unheard of, uh, even in those days. I mean, the, the first nights were first nights. And I remember chatting about with Finney, who had brought down his two middle-aged sisters from Leeds for the first night. And he just grabbed me and said, I cannot believe it. I'm starting in this play, and I have to, I have to buy my 
buy the drinks for my two sisters. And he pointed over at Connery, who was standing near the entrance, with these two very heavy red sort of bodyguards with him, these goons. So I went over and introduced myself, um, and I'm six foot two, and Connery is probably about the same. And I said, um, I'm John Mackin from Newport Standard. I'm just asking, Alan Finney was wondering why he had to buy his his sister's drinks, uh, why you have a pay bar? And all Connery did was incline his head and grunt just slightly. <laughs> and I suddenly felt these sort of arms under my oxters and he got smaller and smaller and smaller as I was thrown out into the mouth. But he never spoke. You know, he just never spoke. And that was, uh, as far as Connery was concerned, um, you know, he didn't need to explain himself. But uh, that, that, that was uh, the only time I... No, the, only, the, the second time I was thrown out of the party was the... That, the um, you know, confronting Frank McCord when um, Harris had told me that uh, Richard Harris, they were both from, were both from Limerick and uh, Richard was uh, at that time uh, he, he, uh, he was living in the Savoy Hotel and McCord who had been a sort of a down at heel lecturer in New York had written Angela's Ashes which is this very sort of grim account of his childhood in County Limerick and um, I used to drink with Harris in the coal hole he was very lonely when he'd come back to having a few beers and we were having a drink one afternoon and I said to him, I've got an invitation to the launch of, the, well not the launch but the celebration of a million copies of Angela's Ashes in paperback from Penguin and Penguin were then located just around the corner on the Strand from, um, from the Savoy and I said to Richard, you know, you're a Limerick man, you, you'd, um, you know, first of all he called it before that a word that, that rhymes with stunt and then... Uh, <laughs> He, uh, I said, what's wrong with that? He says, I thought you were both lit from Limerick. He says, I tell you the Frank McCord. He said, um, when I was, when I was uh, touring with Camelot, the music he owned uh, in America, uh, I was in New York, and Frank McCord's mother was called Angela. And in fact, a, a slight side interest in that was that Frank and his brother Malachi, uh, Malachi's still alive, used to tour Manhattan bars and do a, a two-man show about their deprived childhood and the mother used to turn up and shout lies lies that never happened <laughs> so when she died uh, Harris said that um, they couldn't afford to ship her ashes back to um, to Limerick the native Limerick to scatter in the Shannon so he said he, uh, he had provided the money and uh, according to Harris they went to a cheap shipper in Queens who lost the ashes so Harris insisted he would go to the party but he said you go and ask Frank about that so I turned up at the boardroom in Penguin and Frank was being lionised by all the sort of young girls from publishing about this and talking about this awful childhood he had and I went up I was then working for the Express and I said oh Frank I'm John Mackie from the Daily Express and he was very very amicable and then I said um, I'd like to ask you what happened to your mother's ashes and he immediately grabbed me by the throat and put me up against the wall Richard Harris sent you effing Harris sent you and I said I couldn't speak and I was asked to leave the party. So the following week, I um, went back to the coal hole, and Harris was there looking over, drinking his pint of Boddington, looking over his half glasses, and said, um, well, and I said, I nearly got bloody strangled. He told us the funniest thing he'd ever heard. He's a chancer. He's a chancer. He did lose his mother's ashes. So um, about, Harris died in 2001, and then shortly after that, there was a party at the Irish Embassy for a book that Frank had written called Teacher Man, about his time as a teacher in New York. And I went up to him and I said, do you remember me? I surprised him. He said, I do. And he said, I'm really sorry about that. He said, you're quite right. We did lose the ashes. 
but not to a shipper. We left him in a bar in Manhattan. <laughs> so I was vindicated in that sense. That's a wonderful story, though. Did that story make it into, into the diary? Uh, I think I might have written it in the Express at yeah. the time, uh, but I don't think I, may, I, I explained. I, I, was, I was sort of too too embarrassed by the tone out of the party. I, 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 I just sort of claimed it as an allegation made by Harris and denied by Frank, but I couldn't really shame myself with saying I landed up out in the street again. So how, how did you manage to um, uh, reconcile yourself with Richard Harris? Because there's one, there's one or two things in the book which kind of made me thought, oh, but, yeah. a little bit naughty, but the, uh, the, one of them was that the, uh, you, uh, he told you something off the record about his son's yeah, health, yeah. which you sold to a, uh, a, a, a diary. Daily Star. And, and uh, well, I was then London correspondent of the, the, the Irish press, and, um, and it was a fantastic period because you could do anything you wanted. You could do news, you could do interviews with stars, because none of the... None of the um, Big names were Dublin wasn't on the, the circuit for you know if there was uh, if Norman Mailer was coming over to promote Motor Book or Betty Davis a movie he didn't go to Dublin so he had this wonderful opportunity to, to meet these people but um, basically with Harris um, he um, I did an interview with him he was then living in a, a, a sort of a boutique hotel up in Holland Park uh, and um, we got on swimmingly and um, but he then said. Uh, off the record, and it was off the record, um, that his son Jared, had, had, uh, who was then very young, had had to go to Minnesota for um, some sort of drug rehabilitation treatment. So, of course, I, I wrote the interview up for the Irish press, um, didn't mention this, I then flogged it to, it was then Peter Torrey's diary on the Star, and um, the, the, the Star, which is then owned by the Express fully, and Lord Stevens had then lost a lot, they'd lost a huge amount of money on a libel action involving um, Geoffrey Archer, the, the famous, uh, was it Monica Copley? You remember, is she not fragrant? Yes, yes. And he was, they were looking out for, for a, a, they wanted to win an action. And Harris, they thought, was perfect. Harris had sued on the basis that, um, uh, which is an odd um, basis in law. He wasn't denying it was true. He was denying that he said it was off the record, invasion of privacy almost. But um, so I very naively said I'd give evidence in, in the court. And of course, that was the worst possible, uh, it was a nightmare because um, my employers in Dublin uh, were shocked because they, there was I appearing in all the newspapers about, you know, because Richard Harris had run around the suite chasing a chambermaid in his underpants. And that was in the interview in Ireland, and they read all this out, and of course made the papers here. And um, they, they made a great mistake with Harris at the start of the case. The, the troubles were still going on, and the, the barrister for the Express accused Harris of being a supporter of NORAID in New York. And Harris uh, immediately said, that is not true. I recently issued a statement condemning the IRA, and as a result, I am under sentence of death, and I cannot visit my aged mother in... <laughs> Uh, Limerick, and he then burst into tears. And two of the jurors went for their hankies, and I said, "We're finished here. We're finished." And then, when I was called as a witness, um, the uh, barrister said, "Mr. McGinty, how much did you get for this tittle tattle staring at me?" And Harris was in the well of the court staring up at me. And I said, "30 pounds, Your Honour." And he said, "There, 30 pieces of silver." So the thing was settled at lunchtime. Harris got 80,000 quid. I was in, you know more or less sacked by my job in, in, in Ireland for, for um, double jobbing. And um, I had a mutual friend called Jimmy the Muncher, who was a friend of, of Harris, and he said, Harris won't speak to me now because, you know, I'm guilt by association. So I didn't see Harris or have any contact with him for years until one day I happened to be 
at a, at a do somewhere and I went into um, a card shop, Clinton Cards on the Strand, to buy a Mother's Day card for my mother. Walked into the coal hall and there was Harris sitting over his pint looking at me and I went up to the bar and I looked at him again and he called me over and I said, I, I'm surprised you're speaking to me. Why not? They got eighty thousand quid for FR. Come and join me. So we sat down, and eventually, after a few drinks, he saw this Mother's Day card, and he said, "How much are you sending to your mother?" And I said, "50 pounds." You mean I come from a place called Carvin, which people are like Scotsmen are supposed to be tight. You mean Carvin B? And he grabbed, he said, "Give her a hundred pounds," and then he filled in the entire card, wrote a lovely message to her, but it's covered in beer stains, and. Um, I sent off the card and I, I phoned her a few days later and she got the card. She said, I couldn't understand a word of it. And I said, Richard Harris wrote it. Oh, isn't he lovely? So we became, I suppose, friends. And I think at the heart of it, he was lonely. He was spending £2,000 a week in his suite at the Savoy. He, he, he had no real friends. Um, yeah, his family yeah. were all scattered. And he just enjoyed talking. So we became... Uh, and and the, the whole incident with the... Um, the libel actually became history, um, so it, it didn't really, uh, it, it did damage us initially, but that was, that was the end of it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the other thing I, uh, that made, made me uh, raise my eyebrows slightly in the book was the, uh, I can't remember which paper you were at, but it was a uh, fictional uh, contributor, uh, who, or a, fic- a fictional tipster, which kind of, which, which, which was... Uh, which you, which you mentioned with, uh, you know, yeah. which you're very kind of, uh, you know, open about. Yeah, well, the thing I assume is the statute was, uh, of limitations is, is yeah. closed on that one. Well, it, no, it is at the moment, but it was the, uh, I was on the Times, and there was a culture then in some diaries um, which um, where people um, paid their wives and paid their, you know, it was completely, um, I suppose, corrupt and fraudulent. But what I was doing was, I was actually, um, I, I'd invented a fictional, um, a, a fictional, um, contributor who was actually me and um, I was paying myself but the problem was I was too successful I became the most prominent uh, uh, contributor who was invited to parties by the by the, the paper at the time and of course he, oh, he's, he's ill he can't come and then because a lot of the stories were TV I was on holidays and the editor at the time tried to contact this guy his name was Tommy McCauley because they asked him about it turned out that you know they couldn't find any contact with him they found the address that you know, the checks were going to be living. So basically, instead of saying, um, oh, you know, instead of saying, good heavens, you're, you're even more, um, what would you call it, uh, you're even more productive in terms of stories, uh, he invited me to to, um, to design, which I did, uh, and uh, I had a fairly few grim years freelancing. And then the, uh, this particular individual, uh, I hadn't seen him for a couple of years, and um, I bumped into him on the South Bank, uh, and... Uh, said hello and I, I didn't speak to him and of course by the time I got back to the office he'd sent it and, and slightly before the internet he sent a huge fax explaining my, um, my shame to, uh, to the entire staff done, which you know it uh, was a fair cop that's why I mentioned the book you know I'm not proud of it but I think um, you know he shouldn't pretend that these things didn't happen yeah yeah and the um, I mean there's been uh, it strikes me that reading the book and, uh, re- and reading uh, you know the the, your, your column now in the mail. Yeah. Because the sort of people you write about are uh, uh, sort of different type of celebrity than we have that are quite so prominent now. So kind of like Lord Longford or yeah, politicians yeah. or uh, the old school uh, famous Hollywood actors. So yeah. kind of people who had done something with yeah. their lives. I mean, what do you make of uh, the current crop of sort of 
Kim Kardashians, the uh, reality yeah. TV, the sort of that well, sort exactly. of thing. But again, it's a lack of achievement. I mean, at least um, you know, uh, uh, people in that I, I either have written a decent book or they've been starred in movies or in the case of Longford, who was a campaigner and a colourful character. A lot of the um, celebrities now are, are completely meaningless. I mean, they, they haven't any sort of clout or any sort of, um, what do you call it, hinterland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're very, very much um, here today, gone tomorrow. But because of the, the phenomenon of, of social media and um, YouTube and the, 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 the whole Twitter, the, rest, the whole sort of landscape has changed. It's not like uh, it's not like in the old days where people just uh, had TV, had had, um, had cinema, uh, had, had magazines. Now it's a completely different game. And people are instant. And then there's the instant celebrity, the, the person who's, who's famous for 15 yeah. minutes with Big Brother or with um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And they're not celebrities. I mean, um, I, I, uh, I'm sure they're, they're household names somewhere, but I, I, they, they go over my head. <laughs> do, you, do you get any stories from uh, Twitter or Facebook yourself? Or do you oh, we do, it? yeah, we do get, I mean, we use it uh, quite a bit, and, and uh, Twitter in particular, I mean, there's politicians like Nicholas Sons who are obviously conscious of trying to be amusing and offensive on Twitter, and they're always, because of the nature of, of Hardcastle, which is a sort of a very short... Um, Pithy six or seven stories. They're almost like soundbites. They're almost like Twitter, actually. Yeah. You, you do tend to um, pick up on this, and a huge amount of material we get from contributors is uh, is taken from Twitter or taken from uh, Facebook or taken from uh, social media. Uh, whereas in the old days, it used to be magazines or page six in the New York Times yeah. um, or the New York Daily News, rather. But, but, but they, and everything is instantaneous. I mean, even as we're speaking, you can look down on the on the mail online operation, which is like you know a terracotta army of people just churning out stuff round the clock. They're writing about people they're never going to meet. They're transcribing stuff in magazines, and it's instantaneous. You know, everything is sort of uh, there is no delay now in terms of, of disclosure. Well, what do you think? I mean, you talk about it in the book a little bit, don't you? At the end there, what do you think yeah. about the way? Uh, uh, journalism's changed from the uh, going out, the lunching, the uh, meeting people, drinking, yeah, yeah. Uh, to yeah, the sort of mail online and uh, elsewhere approach of people being really manacled to a desk and producing uh, you know five or six stories a, a day or whatever. Well, I mean, I don't think there's as much fun in it for a start, and there is a nostalgia element of it. I mean, the thing about Fleet Street was it was uh, overmanned and overpaid and you know overdrawn basically. But uh, the fact was it was fun, and people did actually have human contact with, you know, you, you, you went to parties, you went to pubs, you went to launches, you went, whereas a lot of the people now don't, there is no interaction at all between the person who's writing the story, because they're, they're transcribing it from a magazine, from somebody who, who transcribed it from something else, who got it from a publicist, yeah. who didn't have any real sort of sit-down chat. And it's all so controlled now. Everything is sort of deals with publicists where you do write, you don't write about this and we give you that. Yeah. And there isn't um, an understanding that, uh, oh, you could actually pick up the phone and ring somebody uh, who you met who happens to be in the news and, uh, and, and do it, you know, talk to them. Uh, and, and I think that is a great pity. And there is, a, in, in the early days of, of diaries, in my diaries, a big nightmare was libel. It's now privacy. Um, you have this completely bizarre situation where um, people will happily 
post Instagram pictures of the children bathing in the steam yeah. and then suddenly say privacy over something else. I mean, it's, it's a sort of a schizophrenia of celebrity where, where, you know, on the one hand, they create publicity and they allow access, and then on the other hand, they suddenly get, you get a legal warning saying privacy, you know, stop standing outside my house or stop photographing when, when the story doesn't sort of suit them. And has that had a sort of um, like significant, like chilling effect, if you like, on what you can do now compared to oh, yeah. before? You know, in terms of, of and in terms of what the public knows about the people whose you know books yeah. they're buying and. No, I, I think it is a pity. I mean, it, the, the problem is it's it's a rich man's game because it's the rich people who get the injunctions, the rich people who get the lawyers. It's not uh, poor people or people who are disadvantaged are still uh, can be exploited by newspapers or can be. Um, uh, and, and that's that's a sad thing. It's a good thing that there is uh, more um, concern over privacy and more um, what would you call it, discretion. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, people who uh, are in the public eye and richly deserve to be exposed for what they do can afford spending a fortune. And you know there are injunctions you and I know of at the moment. They can afford it. Ordinary people can't. The um uh, so the last few years, the press have written a lot about, um, first of all, hacking, and then Operation Elvedon, we had, yeah, what, 60 yeah. uh, or 65 journalists arrested. Yeah, yeah. Was, there, was hacking ever something that you came on your radar? Were you aware that it was going on? No, no. I mean, yeah. the, most, the most that you know, you'd ever do, you'd try, you might get, uh, ask a policeman to help you with tracing that phone, or uh, and, uh, and a phone number or yeah. uh, a number plane. That was all, you know... Slightly dodgy, but the, the, the whole scale hacking that we saw at News International, where you know, hacking into phones, that, that certainly never, um, uh, it, it was never a practice in diaries. Um, and it, it may be that there were people who were doing that practice that might then sell you a story, uh, but you'd be unaware of where it came from. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I mean, the, the famous uh, story about Tom Bradbury, who was a great friend of Prince William's, and, and uh, it was. Um, it was Prince William had uh, had injured his leg. I think he was still at Eton, and, and he told Bradbury. And of course, Bradbury was worried that people thought he was leaking the story. That's where they got in equipment to discover where it was coming from. And that sort of very very quietly, almost like a sort of uh, a long sort of trail of gunpowder, led to the whole sort of exposure of. Uh, it was a completely immoral practice but it also involved I mean the police for example um, that drama that started last night National Treasure with Bobby Coltrane and it makes very clear that you know this guy is arrested for a historical sexual um, allegation but it suddenly splashed all the papers because the police sell the story yeah. and that's what I remember years ago when, when I was covering the um, I used to go to all the neighbouring toy conferences we were always got uh, industry politicians and there was Sir Nicholas Scott who was then a um, who was then uh, an ex-minister of Northern Ireland, in, uh, MP for Chelsea. And uh, we, we, we were at a party, in the, uh, the Irish Embassy had a party in Bournemouth, and I'll never forget the last thing I heard um, as we were pulling down the barriers was the ambassador saying, a large scotch for St Nicholas. Yeah. And I bumped into him the following morning, and he looked absolutely wretched. And I said, you know, but did you stay long? So I don't know how I got home, I can't remember. Yeah. And of course, what had happened was he had collapsed, and the police had found him. And this, and uh, they got him home. But that evening, the, the sun splashed on, on uh, the story because the police had, had stole the story of Nicholas Scott's disgrace. He couldn't remember it, he was drunk. But, I mean, that combined with the hacking 
was all sort of very, very grubby. And um, I mean, the way the police are much more, what would you call it, enthusiastic and vehement yeah. with various sort of uh, hounding of, of, of pressmen because, um, in a way, they're, they're conscious of their own guilt in the matter. Yeah. And the other side of it was the payments, which struck me the. Uh, um, well, the, obviously, a lot, of, a lot of Sun journalists were uh, through the courts on that. Yeah, one, but, yeah. And it, and it seemed that other, other, a lot of other journalists felt sort of there, but for the greater God, because there's such a uh, obviously a culture of paying for stories. Oh, yeah, the journalists yeah. themselves don't necessarily interrogate whether someone's given a really great story. Say, well, you know, it's not for you to yeah. kind of try and knock it down, is it? But, exactly. I mean, did you uh, feel any sympathy for them, and you think that other people could have, you know? Well, I know, I think that the culture was you pay for information. And even, yeah. I mean, diaries in particular always paid for information. Uh, and I, I, I see no harm in, in that, in the sense that, you know, it's, it's a commodity to be bought. Uh, it depends on who's selling it and where they got it from. But uh, if it's a story, um, and um, it, it's, it's somebody with ring you up and say, oh, I've got this story about... Um, uh, so-and-so's marriage breakup or so-and-so having a fight I want 500 quid for it or whatever uh, whereas um, we say okay we pay you that and, 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 and it's a transaction if the story's true it's true and it appears in the newspaper but I, I think it's it's sort of um, the money aspect of this I think grossly exaggerated because for example in when Nigel Dempster was in his prime 20 years ago the, the, the going rate for a lead story in a diary was about 300 quid it's still 300 quid <laughs> You know, and um, uh, it's not a secret, but in Hardcastle, uh, you know, we pay eighty pounds for for a tip, like somebody ringing up about a you know, politician doing something. But it was eighty pounds in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. So, you know, the the, uh, the 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 golden era of huge payments is all over, I mean, yeah. and also not just with with, with uh, paying for information, book serializations. I mean. Um, People used to get eighty or ninety thousand quid. That is that is not the case anymore. Uh, the um, uh, the, 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 the line has been way way lower for payments for anything. <clears throat> so you do, the uh, you don't the book doesn't dwell too much on your time at the Daily Mail, does it? The um, uh, uh, which perhaps is a discretion on your uh, part. Uh, well, it is slightly it, it, not so much a discretion as it was. The, it's the last sort of phase of my life. It's most recent. I probably if, I, if the book does well, I go back and do a second. <laughs> um, but it, 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 there, there was not a lot of interesting stuff happened to me um, at the mail. Um, so in a sense, uh, and it is more recent. Uh, whereas a lot of the other stuff is, I mean, it's, it's ten years or more since I left the Express, and just twenty years or more since I worked for. Times of the standard, so in a way, it was um, uh, historically easier to do. Yeah. There's one, there's one reasonably colourful quote from uh, your current boss, Paul Dacre, in there. Yeah. Is he sort of content for that to be in there, or is he not? I haven't asked him. <laughs> uh, I haven't asked because uh, he promised to read the book on holiday. But uh, I mean, which colourful quote? I mean, in relation. He to, talks about the Irish, and uh, I mean, but that's that is. Uh, I, I haven't asked him about that. He may. Um, I mean, basically, uh, I, I had just arrived from the Express, and I was. Doing a column called With the Biscuits, which um, uh, was a gossip column. But I used to go to pre planning meetings, and um, I, I, it, Dacre is, uh, was an extraordinary revelation in terms of, I mean, he, he, he's, a, he's a hugely driven man, he's totally committed to everything he does. But um, he, he, I think secretly, he's quite a comedian. I think basically he doesn't actually, uh, he's a very funny man, he pretends not to be. And uh, that was an incident when. Um, uh, my first month or two there, there was uh, this planning meeting. We all have to come up with ideas for the paper, 
and we're all sitting around and, uh, in your short sleeves because you're not really, really wear a jacket or a daily mail. And um, uh, somebody came up with this idea that the Remembrance Sunday was coming up and poppies hadn't been selling very well. Uh, so um, Paul said, uh, right, uh, let's do a Vox Pop, or as he said, a Vox Poppy. We all sort of slapped our thighs and then... Um, he, uh, Colin Gibson was then the uh, sports editor and uh, he was sitting next to me and he said, Colin, have you got a poppy? And I knew for a fact that Colin did not have a poppy in his jacket. And he said, yes, boss, I've got a poppy. And he said, wicked, as he called me. And, and I said, no. And he said, you treacherous Irishman. You left the lights on in, Belfast, in Dublin so the Germans could bomb Belfast. You refueled the U-boats off the coast of Galway. You signed the book of condolence when Hitler died in a German embassy in Dublin. You're a treacherous, treacherous Irishman. And I protested, but Paul, I wasn't even born. And that was my first experience of Paul. And only in, in retrospect, um, I realised that it, it's all tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. You know, he... Um, uh, I don't think he genuinely believes that the, you know, the Irish deliberately left a light song in Dublin to, to guide the German bombers to Belfast. So what do you, so what do you think makes a, um, a good uh, gossip writer or diary writer? What, what's the secret, if, if you like? Well, um, you have to have... have um, you can't be uh, in awe of the people that you're writing about. You, have to, you can't be sycophantic. You have to be... Uh, a, you have to be honest and clear... You ask them a question, okay, if they're not going to answer it, they won't. But I think too many people sort of um, don't ask questions and also sort of stand back and, and, and almost sneakily observe people. And, and uh, I think you can't do that. It's not, it's not, it's not honest or fair. You're not, you're not going to be popular. And, um, but I think um, one of my great heroes or heroines is Helen Minsky, who's just recently retired, who worked for Dempster for 20 or 30 years. And Helen would, would, would encapsulate the, the perfection of a diary writer. She would have a story that was unpleasant for somebody, but she'd ring that person, uh, and if she, and, or if she was at a party, she'd confront them, and she would specifically say, look, this is what I'm going to write. And they could either hang up, or they could get annoyed, or they could, in some cases, they would contact the editor and ask for, and in fairness to Paul, he would never uh, succumb to that. But a, a small example, um, uh, Victor Chandler, not that long ago, a few years ago, Victor Chandler, uh, the um, bootmaker who's based in Gibraltar, um, his uh, young wife ran off with his nephew. And um, somehow Helen got his phone number. And the first thing she said when she called him, is that Victor Chandler? Yes, I'm your nemesis. And uh, sort of, I was watching this, and then she t- explained in great detail what you know that this is the story, and he was, you know, he wasn't very very happy about it. But then she said, "I'll call you back this afternoon, and we go over it." And by the time she called him back, first of all, he'd absorbed the shock. The story was true, yeah. uh, and in fact, the worst the, the worst part of that whole experience for him was not what appeared in the mail. It was having <laughs> been, having Helen Minsky call him, "I am your nemesis." <laughs> down the phone but, but it, it was the honesty of it and the fact that um, you know it wasn't sort of oh don't worry we won't write that and oh no we'll be very and then when the person picks up the paper and finds that the, the, uh, the promise has been reneged upon that causes far more upset because oh you told me you wouldn't do this you wouldn't do that so ultimately I think um, uh, it's, 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 it's a dying breed because there's, there's very very few diaries left in the sense of the old fashioned um, uh, Sort of the Dempster or, or the old Ross Benson or the old William Hickey. 
And it's no, it's it's now more about television and celebrity rather than in the old days it used to be about aristocrats yeah. and racing people. And it has broadened where some of the people in diaries I've never heard of. Uh, and again, we're going back to the Kardashians and the rest of them. But I think that it's um, uh, it, it's. I don't think there are enough diaries. Um, I mean, the Times uh, dropped theirs. Now they've they've um, restored it. And I think it's it's healthy to have competition between people who are you know, uh, in, in varying, various time, types of gossip and uh, doing different types of stories. And, and there seemed to be in the book a prodigious amount of drink taken as well. Yeah, well, uh, I think it might be slightly exaggerated. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be allowed today. If, if, yeah, that's you know, what I was thinking. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, there was. I mean, the thing is that um, uh, a lot of these people, you, you know, expect you to drink with them. I mean, yeah. it's a bit like maybe it's cocaine now. I don't know. I'm too old to, to know. But um, <laughs> the point is that it... There was a culture, uh, certainly in Fleet Street, uh, not just in diaries, but I mean, people drank a lot. You know, it really was. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Chris Williams, my, my um, uh, colleague who's now retired, told me when he was uh, editor of the Scottish Daily Express, there was one particular guy. There's great culture of leaving a jacket at the back of him, yeah. going dashing down to the pop J through the old Express. But uh, in the Glasgow office of the Mail, there was a chap who always snuck out to the pub and. Um, came back uh, after about an hour and Chris said to him, uh, where have you been? And he said, the library. And he looked at his head and said, is it snowing in the library? Because <laughs> <laughs> his head was covered in snow because he'd been out of the pub. But uh, all of that is gone. And, and a good thing it, it, that there's not... So the problem is it's gone from one extreme, which is too much drinking, too much carousing, people um, ruining their health and their careers. Now it's the opposite. Uh, nobody, nobody drinks. I mean, it's just... Uh, it's, it's, it's completely... Uh, it's it's almost a sort of carbon sin to have drunk at lunchtime. Yeah, which is a shame. The um, uh, do, you, do you have any uh, scurrilous gossip about Fleet Street you'd like to share? I'm trying to think. No, well, <laughs> what the old Fleet Street is the new Fleet Street. The well, new Fleet Street. Oh, I don't know. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it's um. Although you see, we're really scattered now as well. I mean, it's, it's the old village of Fleet Street's gone. Where you know you've got Clary Wharf, Victoria. Uh, Kensington. So journalists don't see much of each other. Yeah. And in fact, out here in Kensington is considered like quite an, an, like an overnight market to go to an old lunch in the Simpsons in the Strand because it's so <laughs> far away. People don't go out uh, uh, and they don't really mix and mingle. Uh, when all the newspapers pre-murder were in Fleet Street, uh, people would, would go out at lunchtime and you'd pick up a job. Everybody would go to Alvino's yeah. or to the, the Punch and you'd hear on the grapevine there's a job going in our place. So, um, you, you didn't. They were never advertised. People just said, "Oh, I'll put your name on." You knew each other, and in, in a way, that was probably a good side effect of the, the social drinking, as it were. Um, I mean, it's a great story of Brian Vine, who great Brian Vine, who was involved in the, the Ronnie Biggs great train robbery story and um, uh, the finding of Biggs in Brazil. But he, when he was on the Express, and the Express is located on the Ludgate end of. Uh, Fleet Street and Alvino's is about let's say you know a quarter of a mile up the yeah. near there. And Brian is on his way up to, to um Brian's on his way up to Alvino's and a, a guy comes out of Burbage and stops he's sorry so I can't stop I'm in a taxi because <laughs> <laughs> he was claiming for a taxi. <laughs> I mean that was quite a normal thing to do to be claiming that sort of not just for the drink but for the taxi because non existent. <laughs> Well, look, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks very much for coming on our uh, Press Gazette no, no, uh, podcast. Pleasure.